This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An. If you're a fan of MasterChef Australia, the name Adam Liao would be a very familiar one to you. Now, Adam took home the title in the second season of the series back in 2010, and he has since gone on to publish cookbooks and host TV shows, establishing himself as a household name in Australia and arguably in many households here as well, as this is a very popular TV series. Now, the Malaysian-born Australian cook, author and TV presenter joins me in the studio today to share more about um, how his heritage has influenced his career in food and what else is in the works for him in the years to come. And, you know, we want to ask him if he ever, if he does plan to host a TV series here in Malaysia as well. Um, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you on. Now, I'm going to just firstly admit that I am very much a fan of MasterChef Australia. <laughs> <laughs> have been watching since 2009. Wow, okay. That's a, that's a long haul. It know. is, it so, is. So the, the waiter at breakfast this morning said, how long ago did you win MasterChef? Five, six years? I was like, no, no, it was 13 years ago, a long time ago now. <laughs> does it feel that long to you? Oh, yes, it definitely does. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's... Uh, it, um, I guess so much in my life has changed since that time, mm. um, not just in terms of, I guess, the amount of time that's changed, but, you know, I got married, had three children, it's made a lot of TV shows and books and things, so it just seems like a long time ago for me. Now, if I could also continue down this trip um, on memory lane, you had a career in law at the time. Um, yes. What made you decide to take that plunge to pursue your passion in food? Because that's quite the jump for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I won't say it was deliberate, to be honest. Mm. Um, you know, I, th I think these days people have multiple careers and it's actually quite mm. normal to, to change careers in some way. But like most people, I probably um, dipped my toe into it first. Uh, before I went on to MasterChef, I was working as a lawyer in Japan. Mm. And um, I just was really, I'd, I'd been... Working as a lawyer then for about 11, 12 years, mm. uh, looking to um, have a bit of a break, really. I wasn't looking to change careers, to be honest. Um, and this TV show came along and I'd, honestly, I'd never even seen it because uh, <laughs> I was living in Japan. I hadn't seen the show. But um, I ended up really enjoying the process of uh, making food and making TV and telling stories and writing books that... So, so I, I guess then after I won MasterChef, it was like, I'll try this for a month or two or three. And then, and then um, I made my first, uh, I guess, food travel TV series then, and that mm -hmm. was something I really, really loved. So then I was like, oh, maybe I'll try and make another one. <laughs> and then, you know, one thing leads to another, and all of a sudden it's 13 years later and it's uh, my job now, I guess. Mm. Was there that sort of light bulb moment when you realised that you really loved cooking and this was something you wanted to do? Not, not really. Um, I guess with uh, I, I, it seems a little strange to say it as somebody who genuinely loves cooking and now does it as a career. But I don't think you have to make your hobbies your career mm. in some ways. And and in some ways, I think the the joy that you get from your hobby may not translate to. The, the work side of it. So, for example, my main, I guess, TV series I do is called The Cook-Up. It's on every mm. night in Australia um, and we film a lot there. So we'll film three or four episodes a day and so I'll be in the kitchen 
in the studio kitchen cooking all day from mm. seven a.m. and then I'll go home and. <laughs> unwind by cooking at home. <laughs> so to me, the two things of, uh, I enjoy the, the cooking in the studio, mm-hmm. but I really enjoy the cooking at home as well. So to me, I, I relax from studio cooking by home cooking. Mm. So I, I think if I didn't have the studio cooking, I'd be fine. I'd still relax by home cooking. But if I didn't have the home cooking, I would get stressed. It, mm. it would be stressful for me. Mm, so it's two very different things for you. Definitely. Mm. Um, in the 13 years, you know, since winning the title, as you said, you've gone on to write several cookbooks, you've, host, you've hosted multiple TV shows, you've travelled across the world and Australia. Mm. What has been the most challenging part about doing that? Because that's not just purely about cooking, right? It's a very different mm. process, I imagine. What, what, was, what was that transition like? I guess it's working out what value you can add to a thing. You mm. know, my, um, the other hat that I wear is, I guess, as a TV producer and... Um, there is no shortage of people who come to me and pitch to me ideas for a TV show where they travel around the world mm-hmm. and eat food, essentially. Um, and the first thing I think about when someone is pitching, and I, I understand that I've been doing that for my job for many, many years, but um, and it is fun, mm. but quite often when somebody is pitching a show like that to me, it's like I, I think you're only wanting to do this because you want to go on that trip. So if you are doing it for yourself, what is the viewer getting out of that? So for me, the most challenging thing when I'm doing a, sh- a series is working out what what do I bring mm. that I can give to the viewer that makes my, like I, when you have a fun job, it's very easy just to treat it like it's fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you should treat it like it's fun. It's, 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 uh, but you also have to think about what value you can add uh, for a viewer in order to make it a good show or a good series. Mm. What have you heard back from your viewers? <laughs> Generally, the feedback tends to be pretty good, which I'm very happy about. Um, but uh, it, it's a funny thing being in the public eye, in the media, is, mm. you know, you can have your performance reviews are very um, immediate. Mm. You know, you, you can make a series, you can strategize it, you can think about it, you can try and do your best. And then within 20 seconds of it going to air, you're starting to see the feedback, good and bad. Um, and thankfully, you know, for me, the, the feedback is, is usually very good, um, which is why I've been able to do this for quite a while. But sometimes when the feedback is bad, it's like, you know, I, I take that criticism on board and I try and to, you know, think maybe maybe the value that I brought to this project wasn't, wasn't quite what was needed. Maybe it needed something else. Hmm. Was there a particular, I guess, you know, you've travelled to so many places. Was there a particular place that really has stuck with you all this time that has been very memorable for you? Um, I guess the last big travel series I did before the pandemic was one travelling through China. Mm. And, you know, as someone with Chinese-Malaysian heritage, I'd been to China dozens of times, you know, (laughs) when I was working in Japan, half of my work was in Shanghai or Beijing. So I was there so much. My mother lived in Beijing for 30 years. Mm. I've been there so much, but always just for work. And so, uh, you know, exploring China from a purely food perspective, and then even going back to, you know, my family's village in, uh, on Hainan, um, that was really memorable for me because I had obviously a very strong personal connection to the, to the subject matter there. 
Mm. Um, speaking of your heritage, you know, you were born here in Malaysia, your father's Malaysian, um, but your family moved to Adelaide when you were uh, three, if I'm not mistaken. You've Correct. also worked and lived in Japan, like you said, you've travelled to other countries for work. How have all these experiences of different cultures shaped your interests in food, especially Asian food? Uh, it's been fantastic. You know, I, I don't think I would um, have such an interest in food if it wasn't for these differences because food for most people, if you just stay in one place, the food becomes almost automatic. You mm. know exactly what you're making, you know what goes with what. You don't have to think about it. That's the reason food cultures exist, to stop mm. us having to over-intellectualise <laughs> everything, every single thing that we eat. Um, but I think for for me, particularly when I moved to Japan, mm. I remember there was uh, it was just a, a very simple prawn pasta that I used to make uh, in Adelaide when I was um, living uh, by myself there, and I was like, "Oh, I'll just make that that prawn pasta that I always make." And I, at that point, I couldn't really speak Japanese very well, and I went to the supermarket and I went to a very expensive supermarket and I bought all the wrong things, and it cost me <laughs> probably, you know. 150 something US dollars wow. um, to make this one plate of pasta <laughs> using the world's most expensive prawns. Um, and then it made me think, okay, well, if I'm going to just eat the same way that I've been eating in Australia uh, for all my life, then things are going to be very difficult for me. So then I had to learn how to cook differently, use different ingredients, adapt uh, what I was doing to fit my circumstance. And from there, you get to come up with, uh, I guess, methods and techniques for how to cook things uh, when you're not just going on autopilot and doing things automatically. Mm, it's the experimentation that sort of makes it fun almost, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think in the early years it was kind of experimental, mm. but um, I like to think now later in my <laughs> career it's it's not quite as experimental as it was, but more kind of planned. You know, mm. when I write a recipe now, it's not like I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that it's going to work. Like it will, <laughs> I can say with a fairly degree, high degree of certainty now, having been doing this for a very long time, that that recipe will work and, it will, mm. and I can, I know how it will taste. So I guess to me, those strategies and, and, and techniques for that were once experimentation and sort of trial and error um, aren't quite as experimental anymore, but it allows me to do a lot of different things. Hmm. Um, I've heard that uh, your paternal grandmother had a very strong influence on you as well. Um, can you share a bit more about what your memories are like with her, and and how has she in particular shaped your interest in this in this uh, in food? Sure. Uh, yeah. She's she was a very strong woman. Um, she she was widowed very young. I think in her mid twenties. Um, hmm. And. Uh, my grandfather who passed away, he was a cook in a rest house in, I think, Sigamat, and she w was a washerwoman there. And um, after her husband passed away, she had three children to, to raise, no formal education, um, and she was ran, running a, a coffee shop there while trying to, you know, raise her children and send them to school. And so she, had, she was a very strong woman, was able to... Uh, you know, send all of her children to university um, from essentially having no money whatsoever mm. herself. Um, and she was an amazing cook and, and really did use food as uh, a glue to hold our family 
together. So yeah, I, I not not even so much. I think if anyone has tried to learn cooking from their grandmothers, <laughs> they'll know that that is not exactly a a studious process. There's a lot of getting yelled at while you watch them do things. But that that learning by osmosis is is actually really important. But also learning, you know, the role that food plays in people's lives. Mm. You know, the importance of it. You know. Um, when to serve it, how to serve it, how, you know, giving gifts of food, just how important food is for people rather than just like, oh, what are we having for dinner tonight? Mm. It's not necessarily about the food itself, right, but the, the circumstances in which the food is served and how it brings people together. Exactly, exactly. I think people in Malaysia understand that very well. In Australia, probably not so much. Mm. Um, so a lot of the things that I do in Australia uh, for the Australian audience are very much about, I guess, communicating to a broader audience through television, the kind of lessons that my grandmother was teaching me in our own kitchen. Hmm. I think what you said about how it's a lot of learning by um, osmosis yes. really strikes me because there's no recipe. It's usually just, <laughs> just told to add random <laughs> ingredients in and then somehow it will turn into a good dish. Exactly. On the show with me today is Adam Liao, cook, author and TV presenter and producer, sharing how his journey into the food industry began um, 13 years ago when he won the title of MasterChef Australia in 2010. And we've been also talking about what his food philosophy is. We'll continue this discussion after a few messages, so keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An. In the studio with me today, all the way from Australia, is MasterChef Australia alumni and winner from 2010, Adam Liao. Now, he's in town for the 50th anniversary of the Georgetown-Adelaide Sister City relationship. And we're taking this opportunity to talk to him about how his Malaysian heritage, his experiences abroad and what growing up in Australia was like, how all of that have influenced his interest in food. Now, Adam, I haven't had a chance to ask you this yet, but do you have a favourite Malaysian dish to cook and to eat? It's probably the, the one that I would cook most often would mm. be chicken rice. Mm. Uh, you know, my family is Hainanese. It's the food that I grew up eating the most. Uh, but probably the one that I enjoy cooking most is maybe bakute. Oh, wow. I, I make bakute quite often um, at home. And for some reason, I just find that quite enjoyable. It's very kind of relaxing to cook. Mm. Mm. I mean, it, it does smell and taste very good <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, your, your food career centers a lot around Asian flavors and cuisine, right? whether we're talking about what you cook, your recipe books, your TV programs. Um, for some chefs, you know, when they move abroad into another country, especially from an Asian country to a West, Western country, for example, it, for some of them, it's about maintaining the authenticity of the food, right? You want to cook food how it has always been. For some people, it's more about fusion and modernizing it and, and incorporating elements from the new culture that they're in with sure. where they're from. How do you balance that? You know, what's your food philosophy? Um, I think authenticity is useful only for learning how things used to be made. That is not to say it's not important. Like mm -hmm. I think it, it's a very, very important learning tool to work out how things were done before. Mm -hmm. But then you can do whatever you'd like. You know, the, um, I think the people that get offended when something is not authentic, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're putting a different meaning to the food than the person who is making it. You know, if you, if you go to a... 
mm. a chicken rice stall and they're doing something different. Mm-hmm. Nobody's complaining that that's not authentic. It's like, oh, they're doing something different. They're doing something interesting there. And then, you know, maybe it will be good, maybe it will be bad. Mm. But then I think for, particularly for um, people who have gone overseas, and I know this firsthand because we do it in our family too, we use kind of food as a connection to the culture that we left behind. And so people get, that are get offended about the lack of authenticity in food are getting offended at the lack of that cultural connection that mm. it has to the food. It's got nothing to do with the actual food itself. You know, I make, you know, um, my family has been making Hainanese chicken rice since Hainanese chicken rice was invented. <laughs> and so I, I take that as being as licensed to do literally whatever I want to mm. that dish. Um, you know, I, to, to me, uh, I will add ingredients, I'll take them away, I'll cook them in different ways. Um, and... I will still get people commenting, you know, not authentic or that's not how you make it. I'm like, <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> when you have made that dish as many times as I have made that, mm. and I'm talking thousands of times, then, you know, that I, I will take that criticism seriously. But um, authenticity does not exist in food. It mm. really doesn't. You know, every dish is different uh, every year. Mm. Every minute, every week, you know, their food is a constant evolution. And and if you're saying that something is authentic, it is really just putting a a point in time and saying that was how it was made at that particular time. Mm. You know, if you look at any dish, the ingredients have changed literally from last year to this year. The way that it is cooked is is changing incrementally all the time. And so it's like, like like the frog in water that's getting warmer you don't know mm. you sometimes it's it's changing so slowly that you can't see it changing but it is always changing nobody eats the same way that they did 30 years ago 40 years ago mm. now i know that you um and fellow master chef <laughs> alumni paul also did a series called uh, adam and paul's malaysia in australia now that you sort of <laughs> and then i guess that ties into this point right because you were looking at the malaysian di- diaspora in australia and how they've sort of adapted Malaysian cuisine with local local produce. I mean, what did you learn from that experience? It was um, it, it was a really funny series to make. You know, when the pandemic hit, there were some strange things that happened in television production. And I think I, I'm trying to think of it now. Mm. Is that the first series that I've ever seen? where you're talking about the food of a country but filming it in a completely different country <laughs> <laughs> and travelling around. You know, it, it does not make any sense to make a show about Malaysian food but do it in Australia. But unfortunately, at that time, we could not leave the country and mm. nobody could travel anywhere. So it was just a necessity to do that. Um, but it really did show me how food does change. For example, mm. there is a town called Katanning in Western Australia that has a very large Malay community. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are Malays who went from uh, Malaysia to Christmas Island mm-hmm. a generation or two ago and then from Christmas Island to Australia. Oh, wow. So um, even eating their food, it was very different, you know, very, I guess, authentic Malay mm. food in the sense that it was very similar uh to the kind of food that uh, you or I would know, but still very different to what you would eat in Malaysia and very mm-hmm. different to what you would eat in Australia as well. You know, we have in Darwin in the north of Australia, um, the the dish of the territory, as they call it, is laksa, you know, mm. a, a, a laksa lemak. And everybody in Darwin loves laksa. Everybody knows they, they have a national, uh, uh, an annual competition of who, who makes the best laksa in Darwin. Wow. Every Saturday the entire population goes down to the markets and there's laksa stalls everywhere and they, they just they love it there. And, and um, I'm quite sure that, well, 
I, I know that there are a lot of differences to mm. the dal and laksa that you would get uh, there to what you would get uh, in, you know, KL or mm. um, up further up north, etc. But whether one is authentic or one is not does not really uh, factor into that. These mm. these foods do adapt and they need to adapt uh, to the new places they go into. Otherwise, they just don't make sense. Mm. I think that's the beauty of food as well, that it evolves and it adapts and it reflects the community and the culture at that particular time. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, you're here now um, in KL, I understand, because 2023 is the 50th anniversary of the Georgetown-Adelaide sister city relationship and you have close ties to both cities. Yes. Um, being born in the form and having grown up in the latter, uh, how do you see food being that bridge as well across different countries um, between two or more cultures even? It, it's such an important thing. And, and this is the reason that I guess, you know, I have made a career in food travel series mm. because food is something that is immediately accessible. You can travel from one country to another and you don't need to speak the language. You don't need to know the history. You don't need to understand the politics, but you can experience that country in pretty much exactly the same way as someone who's grown up there their entire life in one plate of food. Mm. Because food does bring all those different elements into it. You know, food does not exist in a vacuum. It exists as a, a product of culture, of geography, of politics, of uh, economics. You know, that, that's how dishes end up on our tables um, by making sense in each of those spheres. So um, food is a very important cultural bridge, not just in terms of travel, but in diplomacy and things as mm. well. You know, the um, food is fundamentally a very social thing. Uh, every event that we have will be marked with a dinner or a, 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 a canapes or a, a party of some kind where yes. food is served. So the, the food is always, it is the one constant. Even if, if there's no speeches, there's always food. If there's, <laughs> no, if there's no balloons, there's always food. There's always food at all these things that we considered to be important and the food therefore itself also becomes important. Hmm. Um, what are your plans for when you're in town this time? I know you're here for only a very brief period <laughs> of time. I'm going to increase my uh, daily meal intake from three to six <laughs> and try and fit in as many uh, meals as possible, to be honest. I love coming to Malaysia to eat. Um, and because I'm only here for a short period, I have to get in as much eating as possible in as short a possible time. <laughs> um, how do you think your perception of cooking and food has changed over the past 13 years compared to when you first started? You know, do you think you're very, the way you cook is very different now? Uh, it definitely is. Um, I, I think at the start, of, the more confident you get with cooking, mm -hmm. the, the more simple your food becomes, I think. You know, when, when you're not very confident with something, you tend to in some ways, try to bluff your way through it <laughs> by making things more complicated or showing off and things. Make and it I, look more fancy than exactly, it is. Exactly, exactly. And these days I don't, like I like to think I'm a fairly confident cook now, so I don't feel the need to to bluff or to um, make things more complicated than they are. Plus, you know, I'm, I'm a busy person like most people are, <laughs> so I try to make food as simple as possible now. And that doesn't mean not tasty or mm. not interesting because tasty and interesting are not things that are correlated with how difficult something mm. it is, is to make. So I like to think the food that I make these days is is very simple, very accessible, uh, but also um, very tasty and very interesting as well. So that's what I, that's what I try to go for uh, when I'm cooking. And uh, I, I guess it's also a little bit more informed. Like I never add an ingredient now 
just to see what will happen. Because I, <laughs> I like to think now I would know what would happen if that ingredient gets added. So I add ingredients for very specific purposes and I, mm. I try and cook with as few fancy elements as possible, try and just keep things simple and, and really focused. Mm. I mean, that said, Adam, I've seen some of the recipes you posted on your Instagram. Um, it, it can feel seem or look intimidating to people who mm. don't cook often. Um, but what, what do you want people to take away from, I guess, the recipes that you post, the rest, the books that you publish, or even your cooking shows, right? Because in general, I think people are sometimes fearful of cooking or you just cook the same thing again and again because you know that is good, that is easy. Well, I think, I think people should cook the same thing again and again. Mm. One, one of the problems I think with people cooking is they try and make something new every time and that's exhausting. It's genuinely quite exhausting. And it also, I think it, it's, it, it kind of exponentially reduces the effort the multiple times. You know, like mm. if, if you make something once, mm -hmm. you're using 100% of the possible effort for that. The second time you make it, you would be 50%. And then the third time you make it, it would be 50% of the guy. So 25% of the original effort. And, and it will be faster. It will taste better. Um, but trying to make something new... Mm every time you cook is actually not the right way to do it. If you try a new recipe and you go, oh, that was maybe a little bit hard, but it was very nice, I would say make that five more times. Mm. And then by the time you've made it five times, you, you're not looking at the recipe anymore. It's probably literally one-tenth of the time that it took to cook the first time mm -hmm. that you're taking to cook it. So then it becomes part of you, part of your food. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's one of the ways that I think that people can grow the repertoire of what they can cook without mm -hmm. it being too intimidating. It's just to pick a few things, like maybe maybe try and add four or five new recipes each year. You know, mm. that's all you really need. The, the research shows that on average people in Australia anyway cook really five things. Wow. Only five things. That's not even enough to get through one week. <laughs> but it will be like a pasta, maybe a stir fry, uh, sausages or so, something like that. And that they'll just rotate those things. Mm. Uh, again, maybe with little variations here and there. So if you are adding five more dishes to your repertoire each year, that's only mm. really trying one more recipe every every couple of months, mm. then you are streets ahead of most other people. Mm. Four to five recipes a year seems a lot more doable than thinking of trying a new recipe every month. Right. Like, I mean, I, I honestly, I write five or six, no, how many recipes do I write per week? It's probably around the 20 mark per week. Wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a number of different columns in newspapers. I write books and mm -hmm. TV series as well. And even just for my TV series, it's mm -hmm. uh, 12 recipes per week that I write for that. And then two more for my one column and then another two more for another column. So yeah, it's, a, it's about 20 a week. Um, and I don't expect people to cook 20 recipes a week. <laughs> Literally, I think five a year is, is, is what people should aim for. Mm, all right. Um, before we end, Adam, I have to ask, are there any plans to host a food show here in Malaysia? I would love to. Honestly, we were just talking about that lunch. You know, there was my... I was really happy with it. So the, the, the show that Poe and I did, uh, Malaysia and Australia, I was really happy to make that show, but mm -hmm. it would have been a, a very different show had we done that in Malaysia. Um, and then we've just done another one where we travel around Australia called Great Australian Bites. But I think I would love to do just uh, a, a show showing the best of Malaysian food all around the country. Well, we're definitely happy to host both you and Paul if you ever come here to do that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today, Adam. Thank you. I've been speaking to Adam Liao, cook, television presenter and author on Live and Learn. I'm Lim Suen. This has been The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.